0: Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Penny Sashay.
1: And I'm Rowan Hooper. And this week we welcome back two veteran guests to the pod, <laughs> news editor Jacob Aaron and reporter Michael LePage. Hello, Hello veterans.
2: <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for that.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Coming up on the show, we're talking about the global food crisis, we're going to discuss what makes particular pairs of words funny, and we're also talking with writer and conservationist George Monbiot on what he calls the most destructive human activity ever to have blighted the earth.
1: Yeah, uh, we're also going to be hearing this. And we'll find out why biologists are recording soundscapes from the Brazilian Amazon. And we're getting the latest commercial spaceflight news as Boeing launches its Starliner to the International Space Station.
0: We've also got a special offer for our listeners in the US. You can get three months of a free digital subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com unlimited. You'll get free access to all the premium content on our website and our new app. That's all our features, all our in-depth reporting and analysis and every single one of our news stories. The offer is worth $50, so really worth snapping up. Go to newscientist.com slash unlimited.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing US offer. But for everyone else in the rest of the world, you also have a great deal. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20. We're
0: going to start this week with the global food crisis. And it is a crisis, isn't it, Michael? You've been reporting on this for us.
2: Uh, that's right. Uh, I'm afraid it very much is a crisis. So I think probably everyone's been noticing that their, their food bills are going up. And if you're on a low income, that means you may really be struggling. And the Secretary General of the UN, uh, Antonio Guterres, said a couple of weeks ago, we're facing hunger on an unprecedented scale. Food prices have never been higher and millions of lives and livelihoods are, are hanging in a balance.
1: Yeah, so very much a crisis. Uh, and Michael, of course, now the world is... The world
2: is just swinging into action, isn't it, to sort this problem out? If only, if only. Uh, I, I'm yeah. afraid there's not much happening.
0: So um, before we get into that, tell us what's causing the crisis. What, what's the background here?
2: Well, basically, we have a crisis on top of a crisis. So first, we had the coronavirus pandemic, which affected lots of people's lives and livelihoods and, and also pushed up food prices. And now we've got the war in Ukraine, which is effect- causing food prices shortages directly because Ukraine can no longer export food, but also having various knock on effects such as increasing the prices of fertilizer. And so global food prices were already at an all time high even before the war. And now they've gone even higher, and we could see them going yet higher still. Uh, And so we're looking at something like 300 million people around the world who are already not getting enough food before the war started, and that could get much, much worse. So uh, the head of the UN World Food Programme, David Beasley, has said that 50 million people are knocking on famine's door.
1: Yeah, Beasley um, came to prominence uh, a month or so ago when he asked billionaires to to basically step up and and help solve world hunger. And he had that sort of run in with Elon Musk. But yeah, so far, the billionaires haven't haven't stepped up.
2: No, they haven't. And... uh, if we don't do anything to try and get food prices back down, the the danger is that that things are going to get much worse. So the hardest hit countries are are obviously include some of the poorest countries in the world, such as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Yemen. But this is this is a a worldwide issue because you know even in rich countries, people on low incomes are are going to be affected by this.
1: Yeah, I mean you know not to downplay the health and humanitarian issues. But, you know, I, they're kind of obvious if you think about a food crisis. But then there's also these geopolitical implications, aren't there? I mean, like the Arab Spring was triggered by climate change wiping out harvests and causing food prices to rise. So, you know, we there's that to add to the mix as well, isn't there?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, people are warning that, you know, we could have a perfect storm where we have rising food prices, we have the war in Ukraine, and then that triggers other crises elsewhere in the world across the Middle East and Africa, in particular. Uh, uh, and so the danger is that, that that's, this turns into something even worse than, than what we have now.
0: And Roran, you mentioned climate change. H- how does that tie into all of the other crises, Michael?
2: Well, it- it affects um food production very directly, for instance, we've just seen extreme heat in India, which has affected wheat harvest and now India has banned the export of wheat, which is going to send prices up even further. but there are also you know more indirect effects, for instance, if it's very hot, people can't work out in in the fields and so on and so extreme weather is is already affecting food production and of course we we haven't even hit one point5 yet uh, and if we pass that it's going to get much much worse.
0: So, you know, the billionaires haven't necessarily stepped up, but what about the global leaders? What what should they be doing right now?
2: Well, the first thing we need to do is get more food on the market to bring prices down. And there's actually a, a very simple way of doing that, which is we turn in lots of food into biofuels and this is mostly driven by subsidies. So all we have to do is reduce those subsidies a little and free up more food to actually be eaten by people. And then that could bring prices down right away. And, and this has been acknowledged by sort of ministers in Germany, for instance, but so far, very little has actually happened.
1: Yeah, so ma- so basically, don't turn as much food into biofuel. Um, we're also turning too much food into animals and then eating the animals. So we should do that less. And we're going to be talking about that actually with uh, George Monbiot later in the show.
2: Yeah, so cutting biofuel and meat production is really important. Getting meat production down is obviously quite tricky, of course. But doing all of these things, are a win-win-win because we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we can help uh, save habitats from destruction because we won't be needing as much farmland, and we can ease the food crisis. One of the people I interviewed said this is actually an opportunity to start doing things that we should be doing already.
0: And you can read Michael's analysis of this, which takes you through all the crises and the solutions step by step in this week's issue of the magazine. It's absolutely essential reading.
1: Now we've spoken on numerous occasions about the importance of the Amazon rainforest and the threat it's facing but I don't think we've heard it directly so that's what we're going to do now.
0: It would be so relaxing if not for the squawking. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. Well, that's a recording from, it's a new field of study really called eco-acoustics and they call that an animal orchestra. And the idea is that you record this and you use the acoustics of an ecosystem to assess its biodiversity.
0: So you listen to what you hear and you can kind of tell how intact and complete a habitat or ecosystem is. Is that yeah, the idea? Yeah,
1: exactly. So, mm. yeah, exactly. You, if you want to assess the status of an area of forest, of degraded forest, in the past, you'd have to go there and catalogue all the species there and then compare it to intact forest. And, you know, you can imagine how long that's going to take, especially in a, you know, a rainforest, really biodiverse, rich area. But I've been chatting with Danielle Rappaport of the University of Maryland. And so she's been recording this animal orchestra in different parts of the Brazilian Amazon. And it basically allows them to assess the situation there. So let's have another listen.
0: So do we know what bird that was?
1: Well, um, well, I asked Danielle that um, and she said, no, It actually, even she didn't know. Um, but she, that's the point, actually. And she said it doesn't matter because with this approach to the soundscape, the soundscape approach, they just don't need to identify the species. They just need to identify the sound signature that each species makes. And they've done that um, across 39 logged and burned forests in the southern Amazon, southern Brazilian Amazon. And um, what they found is that in forests that have been burned multiple times, these networks of animal orchestra networks were quieter and more homogeneous than in forests that have been logged or burned only once.
0: So that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, really cool that it works, although not so great that the forests are being burned and multiply burned down.
1: down and logged, yeah. yeah. No, so it supports what they call the acoustic niche hypothesis, which says that more intact habitats support these more biodiverse communities, which occupy more acoustic niches.
0: Mm, Really important because we've just had the latest figures on deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon and April set a record high, which I, I know we always talk about record highs, but that's actually particularly surprising because April is still the rainy season and it's usually harder for loggers to get in there. So we, we wouldn't normally expect such extensive destruction at this time of year.
1: No, except it's an election year in Brazil. And then what happens in those years is that uh, law enforcement just totally drops off because they don't want to irritate the voters. So basically loads of illegal logging just takes off because no one's going to get caught for it or held to account for it. So you get even more deforestation going on. And that's expected to rise in the months leading up to the election. Uh, So, yeah, it's just horrendous. Um, And, you know, just to recap what we've said before about the Amazon, it's home to one in 10 of the world's species. It regulates the climate around the world. It's this massive carbon reserve, Um, you know, not to mention the tens of millions of people who live there and the indigenous people. There's a million indigenous people in Brazil, in the Brazilian Amazon alone. So it's really shocking to see deforestation being normalized over these months
0: a quick break to tell you about a podcast we're loving at the moment do you ever struggle to fall asleep well calm history may do wonders for you enjoy curious stories and trivia from history narrated in a calm voice to reduce stress and help you to relax whether you're trying to get off to sleep or just need a moment's peace
1: the first episode gets into the history of rubber and charles goodyear there's also an episode all about joan of arc and my personal favorite is an exploration of how different countries got their names if you fancy giving it a listen, search for Calm History in your podcast player of choice and we'll pop a link in the show notes. Now, Penny, I know you're going to like, you're going to love this next story because it's about the ongoing development of commercial spaceflight.
0: Yay! Hooray, yeah, we're, we're <laughs> trashing the Amazon, so why not go to space?
1: <laughs> oh, you put it like that, it sucks all the joy I'm out sorry, <laughs> it. I'm
0: sorry, What, down it Anyway, sorry, carry on without me.
1: Jacob, what's the story? Um, it's about Boeing, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's about Boeing. So it, it is commercial spaceflight. It's not, um, you know, the sort of billionaire joy rides that we've seen um, in recent months. This is actually part of NASA's um, commercial spacecraft program in which they've been trying to get private companies to develop an alternative to the Space Shuttle, which was retired in 2011. And on Thursday, we're going to see the launch of Boeing's Starliner spacecraft to the International Space Station. So Boeing has tried to to launch this spacecraft before and not managed to do so successfully so really this is going to be a big deal if they if they do manage it.
0: But there's no one on this launch, right?
3: That's right. So it's it's a crewed spacecraft that has the capability to launch humans. For this test launch it's launching with a, a dummy called Rosie the Rocketeer who's going to be uh, taking part in the test.
1: I can't help but notice that they've got a dummy called a female dummy unlike the star man dummy that spacex had on its falcon heavy i I wonder if that's a deliberate thing
3: it might be nasa's very big on the fact that they're going to be sending the first woman to the moon uh, as they relaunch their artemis program starliner is not actually designed to go to the moon but i can i can see that perhaps this is a, a good bit of pr tying in with that
1: it's better pr sure but they are pretty late behind aren't they pretty far behind spacex aren't they Boeing.
3: Yeah so SpaceX um you know started around the same same time uh, as Boeing in developing this spacecraft uh, there's SpaceX equivalent is the Crew Dragon. SpaceX started uh, with its Cargo Dragon, which has been flying to the International Space Station for some time now. They were testing the Crew Dragon for a while and then in 2020 actually made the first crewed launch uh, to the ISS, the first crewed launch from US soil since 2011 when the Space Shuttle was retired. Finally, sort of realising what NASA was trying to do, Boeing is still playing catch-up. Uh, NASA originally wanted to have two spacecraft that could go to the ISS. At the moment, they still only have one until Boeing is successful.
1: Okay, so this is mostly being driven by by NASA then?
3: Yes, NASA's kind of funded the, the development of these things. Boeing, unlike SpaceX, which kind of under Elon Musk pursues its own commercial interest, although it has definitely been helped by the, the NASA funding, Boeing is a more sort of traditional aerospace company and sort of say, OK, NASA, you want this, we're building this for you. They've not necessarily got other plans for it, although I imagine that might come down the line uh, once we see a successful test.
0: We're going to talk about the problems with farming now. George Monbiot is a writer and environmental activist, and he's just written a new book called Regenesis, feeding the world without devouring the planet. Rowan spoke with him earlier.
1: Okay, George, thanks for joining us. So you say in the book that farming is the most destructive human activity ever to have blighted the earth. People might be a bit shocked by that. So can we start with that?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's something people really don't want to hear because obviously we need farming. We're totally dependent on farming and it's surrounded by all these sort of comforting myths and the the stories for very young children, all about this lovely livestock farm where there's one horse and one cow and one pig and one cat and one dog all living in harmony. And that's how we like to see it. But the reality is it's the greatest cause of habitat destruction, the greatest cause of biodiversity loss, the greatest cause of extinction. One of the greatest causes of climate breakdown, of freshwater pollution, of marine pollution, also major cause actually of of air pollution. We don't think about that very often. Major cause of soil loss, of water use. The the list goes on and on. Um, And it is amazing how little it features in our environmental consciousness. We talk about transport, we talk about home insulation, we talk about industry, and yet somehow we don't want to go there. Yeah. Well, Why is that, actually? I think it arises from these sort of very deeply implanted, well, root metaphors, as the cognitive historian Jeremy Lent calls them, which is this these ideas which have sunk so deep into the sort of fabric of our being that we, we don't even see them as ideas anymore. This is the way the world is. And and you could trace it. I mean, one line of thought would trace it back to the pastoral poetry, which was originally conceived by the ancient Greeks and then picked up by the Romans. And then in the Renaissance um, here in Europe and in England in particular, and then gets picked up by those children's books, but also by like Sunday night TV. And, and, and what it says is, is the countryside and farming is the seat of innocence and purity and the city is evil and corrupt. It's a seething cauldron of corruption, and if you want to get away from all that, you go into the countryside, and there you see farmers at peace with the land, living in harmony, and the rest of it. And this is this is a story which has been told again and again and again, and it's embedded itself, but it's not actually true. <laughs> and, um, and while obviously farming is essential, and there are many good farmers who are absolutely doing their best. Farming as an industry, when you step back from it, is this unbelievably damaging thing that we are doing to planet Earth.
1: Something I hear a lot is that uh, if you eat free-range eggs or pasture-fed beef, uh, that's okay. But that's not the case, is it?
4: It really isn't. In fact, one of the shocking findings when researching the book was that possibly the most damaging of all farm products is organic pasture-fed beef and and the more free-range something is, the more damage it's likely to be doing. So in the case of beef, you've got several factors there. One is the sheer amount of land you need to maintain or produce that, that organic pasture-fed beef, and the more land is used for agriculture or for any extractive industry, the less is available for forests, for wetlands, for savannas, for the other wild ecosystems required to sustain biodiversity and prevent um, the sixth great extinction. And so when people say they hate intensive farming and they want it to be more extensive, that means you're using more land to produce the same amount of food. And land use should be our crucial environmental metric. We we should be constantly aware of how much land we're using. We're aware of how much pollution we're making and how much carbon dioxide we're producing and the rest. But how much land you're using is absolutely crucially important in determining whether Earth systems are going to survive or not. But then there's also the fact that um, organic pasture-fed animals take longer to grow. They produce more nitrous oxide in their dung, more methane altogether. The general load on the planet is is that much greater. Um, The same applies to free-range chickens. Um, When they're outdoors, obviously it's kinder to the chicken, but they're laying down dung in really intense quantities on the ground that gets washed off into the rivers they use more energy so they need more feed they need more land obviously so none of these things are so to speak a free lunch
1: okay so look the first half of your book i think will really shock people uh, and challenge them and it should but the second half is if not more important really because it offers a vision doesn't it, it offers solutions and hope so uh, let's have some of that now please yeah
4: so so i look at The ways in which we can produce the sort of three main categories of food, really, which is um, our staple crops, mostly grains, um, though not exclusively, fruit and vegetables and protein and fat. And in all cases, there are potential transformative solutions to some of the huge environmental, social, economic problems now associated with our food supply. The biggest, I suppose, the one which makes the biggest difference of all is basically taking protein and fat production out of farming altogether and producing those essential elements of our diet through precision fermentation. In other words, Mm. through brewing, brewing microbes in factories. Now, obviously, a lot of people are horrified by this prospect, but I think if it were the other way around, if we're already doing it that way and someone said no 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 we're going to scrap all that i know we'll go and get it from animals instead and we'll round up loads of them and domesticate them and, and breed them in huge numbers and kill 75 billion of them a year and introduce pandemics into the human population and destroy vast tracts of the planet to do so and all the rest of it they'd be absolutely horrified and this you know precision fermentation uses a tiny fraction of the land a tiny fraction of the resources the materials to produce Basically anything you want, eventually, you know, any protein, any fat in any combination, not just to substitute the meat and milk that we currently eat today, but to produce a whole range of products we never even thought of. Just as Hmm. the first people to domesticate a cow were never thinking of camembert, you know, there's there's endless possibilities begin to arise. So that's, that's one area. There's also... In terms of arable crops, I've become very interested indeed in switching from annual crops to perennial crops and Mm. follow the work of the Land Institute in Kansas, which has been developing a whole range of perennial cereal grains, perennial oil crops, eventually perennial beans, we hope, which all could potentially greatly reduce the impact because you don't have to plough the land every year and and get those crops started again every year, which requires often a lot of agrochemicals and stuff. You could, you could greatly reduce impacts that way. It's very exciting. I've eaten some of their products. They're fantastic. So there's potential there. But then perhaps most revolutionary of all is the work of this um, remarkable vegetable grower, um, Ian Tolhurst, or Tolly, who has effectively anticipated the latest developments in soil ecology by about 20 years (laughs) and worked out that by tweaking the relationship between plants, bacteria and fungi, you can actually greatly raise the fertility of your soil without fertiliser or manure. And he now farming on really rubbish soil is hitting the lower bound of conventional yields on good soil without fertilisers or manure. It's quite a remarkable thing. And it's not easy to replicate, but it gives us a pointer as to where we could potentially begin to take
0: things. That was George Monbiot talking about his new book, Regenesis, and we'll put a link to Rowan's review of the book in our show notes.
1: Also, there's a longer version of that interview, and we'll put that on our, on our sister podcast, New Scientist Weekly Extra. And now for some for some funk fungus. God, I had to be careful with how I said that. Penny, what is <laughs> what is funk fungus?
0: Well, uh, funk fungus, which is hard to say without laughing, is not a real thing. It's uh. a pair of words that are very funny when put together. According to science.
1: <laughs> Thanks for science. That's that's what we're here for, isn't it? Um, is this what we're doing now? Is that what science is doing? Uh, you know, proving what words go together.
0: A few. Um, uh, how about this one? Try this one on for size. Gnome bone. <laughs> oh, God. Um, another one they had um, was weasel penis. This
1: this is sounding a bit bit schoolboy humor level. Yeah. Um, uh, is this a study? What is this?
0: Yeah. So what this is is a team wanted to determine what makes some word pairs. Humorous and funny and makes us giggle, and and why other pairs of words don't. So to do this, they generated fifty five thousand word pairings and asked around six hundred participants to say if they found them funny or not. I don't know. Was <laughs> this six hundred
1: one toddlers? they asked
0: <laughs> <laughs> we all have a toddler inside yeah. <laughs> um, so they found pairs like playboy parrot and spam scrotum <laughs> came out on top
1: <laughs> oh god um, i won't ask why and what about something unfunny what what were unfunny ones
0: yeah they, they were unfunny they included phrases like large small schedule year and sell bargain
1: Oh yes deeply unfunny ones mm. um what so what are they learning from this
0: They concluded that concrete images are funnier than abstract ideas. Um, For example, turnip tramp is funnier than life friend, apparently.
1: Yes, it
0: is. And they also found that similar sounding words like uh, funk fungus and gnome bone tend to be funnier than more varied words like conserve health.
1: Mm. I I can't help seeing that funk fungus and gnome bone do... I mean, like I said, I almost miss said funk fungus and gnome bone suggests something quite obscene to me, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I hadn't thought of it that way, Ryan. But, um, yeah, you have to... Uh, the, the, the perhaps unsurprising other conclusion from the study was that people tend to find word pairs that are related to sex or bodily functions more amusing.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, that, but yeah, That's the the ultimate rule of of humour, isn't it? Well, so what is this all about? Are they doing it... You know, You know when you see AIs trying to make jokes... and uh, and attempting to do a joke, is that anything to do with this?
0: Yeah, I don't know if if this team specifically are looking at that, but there certainly are people trying to to get AIs to make jokes. Well, I want to it's... hear the
1: joke about a gnome bone. What the, uh, what's the what's,
0: what's listeners, the please tweet us. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... Oh no, don't. <laughs> but um, you know, I think none of this is stuff that a comedian or, or comedy writer couldn't have told you already. But mm. I guess. There are reasons to sort of learning what makes us laugh, um, not just to train our AIs, but it might sort of help us understand how we think about language or also how we bond over laughing about language. Um, mm. But uh, I, yeah, I have to say, it did give me a laugh.
1: Yes. Well, thank you for spam scrotum. And we'll <laughs> leave it there this week. Uh, do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen.
0: Thanks to our guests on the pod this week, Jacob Aaron and Michael LePage. I'm Penny Sarchet.
1: And I'm... <laughs> I was just (laughs) going to say gnome bone. I'm going (laughs) to Bye for now and take care. See you next week. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.